Hey, everybody. My name is Justin Murphy, and this is my podcast. It's called Other Life because it's where I talk about all the things I don't get to talk about in normal life. So if you're into it, you should definitely subscribe. And if you'd like to talk to other people interested in what I'm interested in, or ask me questions or request future topics or guests, please just follow the link in the show notes. Finally, I just want to give a huge thanks to all the donors and patrons. I could not keep this podcast running without financial backers, so I'm very grateful. And I would just say that if you enjoy this podcast or my blog or my videos, please do consider signing up to give a little bit of money each month. It would really help me grow out this project, and it would mean a lot to me. So thanks a lot. Now on to the podcast. Over and out. Thank you, everyone, for coming back to hang out in my weird little pocket of the internet. We are in just a few moments going to be joined by Claire Lehman, the editor of Quillette. In fact, she is with us right now, uh, waiting in the wings. We were just having a little chat a minute ago. So I'm going to keep this little warm-up introduction, housekeeping period quite brief today. Don't want to keep Claire waiting. I'm very excited to talk with her. I have a lot of interesting questions for her. And I think, I think yes, this will be uh, this will easily fill the time and space with a lot of interesting questions and topics because... I have obviously been following the development and kind of the rise of Quillette for quite some time. And anyone who's watched my stuff before knows that kind of the changing, the changing power balances, let's say of kind of the the culture industry today and the various sites of intellectual production and intellectual power is basically one of my kind of abiding interests at the moment, something I'm paying a lot of attention to. And so Quillette is of obvious interest Probably most of you listening now know about Quillette. You probably know the name Claire Lehman or, you know, her face from Twitter. uh, So I won't go into it too much, but uh, Quillette is a kind of recent, how would you describe it, Ben? Like a a recent upstart, I would say, in the kind of independent intellectual spaces of the internet. Uh, It's a real site of a lot of people kind of pushing back against some of the, the most insane excesses of kind of contemporary academia and kind of general kind of social justice uh, insanity, which seems to be accelerating or fizzling out. In fact, that might be an interesting little conversation we might have because that's kind of a recurring point of contention on on my show. In any event, yeah, Quillette has definitely been a big player in this kind of changing landscape of cultural politics. So I've been watching it closely and generally quite sympathetically. So yeah, that's what we'll, we'll be talking all about that. I have lots of questions for Claire. Maybe she has some for us. Let's see. And uh, otherwise, all I want to say before we go live uh, with Claire is just a few quick things. As always, I try to give a big explicit uh, thanks to all my patrons who literally I could not be building all this up in the quite you know exciting way that I am if it wasn't for all the people out there who throw me some money each month. Really grateful yeah, just super grateful. So thanks and shout out to all my patrons. And also, I just want to let people know that if you're here for the first time, uh, please do subscribe if you're interested in this. If you find the conversation and the stuff that I'm interested in cool, then subscribe. If you don't, that's fine. Then don't. I'm uh, <laughs> No pressure. And uh, if you want to talk more about the stuff that we talk about in this live stream with me and other people like me or whatever, I have a little private forum and there's a link in the description below. There's just like a little entrance survey to filter out the trolls and kind of low effort. Uh, dummies. So uh, if you're interested, just fill out the entrance survey. And uh, yeah, I, you can chat with me later in the in the private forum. So I think I'll just keep it at that. Um, I have some other news coming up. I have some big projects that I'm working on and that I'm going to soon kind of start uh, sharing with people. But I think I don't want to keep Claire waiting too long. So I'll keep the housekeeping short for today. Otherwise, just thanks for thanks for coming out tonight, everyone. And I hope this I hope you enjoy this. Ben, 
let's bring on Claire. Shall we tell me when we are? We got both. All right, Claire, how are you doing? You all right? Yeah, good. How are you doing? I'm very well. Yeah, I can't complain at all. Uh, you're calling in today from Australia, is that right? Yeah, it's 10 a.m. here in Sydney. Excellent. And if you don't mind me asking, I just want to kind of get, you know, get a, get a vibe for where you're coming from. Are you, are you out and about? Are you at your home or what's going on? I'm at home today. Yeah. Excellent. So, Excellent. Yeah, this is where I work when I'm in, in ho- at home. This is my chair. Got my books, got my table, got my computer. So is that where you spend most of your time on a day-to-day basis, would you say? Um, I have an office in the city. Uh, and I would spend most of my work time at my city office, um, but I spend a fair amount of time working from home as well. Okay. So do you like rent out like private workspace or something or what? Yeah, I've got a couple of desks in an incubator at the moment, a media incubator. Um, hmm. But prior to that, I shared an office with my husband. Um, so I've moved around a little bit. I have never had an entire floor of a building <laughs> just for Quillette, but we'll get there one day. Is that the goal? Hopefully, yeah. And yeah. is Quillette now mostly uh, all remote or do you have some yeah. people on site that you work with on a daily basis in person? Yeah, it's mostly remote, but I have one person working with me at the moment on the technical side of things. And in the past, I've had admin admin assistants and sort of um, sub-editors working alongside me, but my editors, my dream team of editors are all remote. So they're in London, Toronto, um, Stockholm. Uh, yes, yeah, so they're international. In fact, if it's okay with you, actually, a lot of my questions as I was brainstorming the types of things that I thought it'd be most interesting to chat with you about, a lot of my interests and, and curiosities about you and your projects actually have to do with kind of the logistics and kind of the back end of how you operate. Because in some ways... I'm, my own work is kind of becoming more and more focused on kind of the the political and the strategic and the kind of economic and logistical questions of basically how people are figuring out ways to kind of hack the current kind of media and intellectual landscape to create mm-hmm. new types of projects, but not just create them, but do them successfully and make them work really well and mm-hmm. make and make them grow and stuff like that. I'm, I'm, I've become quite fascinated by that because I, my sense is that this weird new space that that you're occupying that Quillette has, you know, uh, played a huge role in, in kind of smashing open and that in my own little way, I'm, I'm occupying myself. This weird new internet space is, it's so new. And I think there are tons of people really interested in creating their own types of projects in this weird new world. But mm-hmm. since it's so new, people really don't know what the best practices are, how to do it. And, you know, so this has kind of been become one of my interests is like talking with mm-hmm. people who are doing this and doing it successfully and, and trying to kind of understand and share with people like what works and what doesn't work. So is this like an okay, like domain of questioning for, for you? Absolutely. Go for awesome. It. Excellent. So, so then I'll just push in a little bit on, on that then. So I, if you don't mind me asking, like uh, some concrete details would be, I think be intriguing for me and my audience. Like, do you, does your team work in like a Slack channel or is it email heavy or um, what's like the, what's the day-to-day workflows of Quillette look like? Okay, so yeah, we have a Slack channel. We have an editorial bunker on Slack, and uh, my editors work through the night while I'm asleep, and I wake up and I see the conversations that they've had and the discussions they're having about articles. And um, and one thing I found is that um, as long as you bring on board very talented people, you can give them a lot of autonomy. So I only my editors 
my colleagues, Jonathan Kay, Jamie Palmer, Toby Young and Paulina Newding, they um, commission and receive and edit articles without my input. And I, I often only get brought in if something's quite controversial and I have to make a decision about whether we move forward with it or not. Mm-hmm. So I think when you're having a, a remote office, giving people as much autonomy as possible is is ideal because you, you, you can't be awake, you can't be present and you can't be available for all of these kind of insignificant decisions. Right. Um, so having a team of really talented colleagues who you trust, uh, that's the way to do it, I think. And when you first started, though, I think I listened to a few interviews with you ahead of this podcast. And my the impression that I got was, correct me if I'm wrong, but the impression I got was that, well, that was a relatively kind of informal experiment on your part. You kind of just sort of threw it up, wanted to see what would happen uh, with relatively modest ambitions or expectations. And then it kind of blew up. So mm-hmm. I'm kind of curious when you first when you first started Quillette and you first kind of experimented with the idea and got it out there, what was your kind of, what were your workflows like then? I imagine they were probably pretty, you know, informal and, and haphazard. Like was there, yeah. when things started to pick up, was there, were there, were there kind of early lessons that you learned through practice of like uh, how, how to, how to handle the, the kind of growth or scale of a kind of creative yeah. and, and intellectual internet project? Yeah, that's a good question, and I don't think I fully solved that yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I started, it was just me, and it was just me for a long time, and I always underestimated the amount of work that it was going to take. And um, I remember the first year having to sit down and proofread um, an article on Christmas Day. You know, I had to take take time out of Christmas Day, and I just – the amount, the amount of work and the amount of um, duty and obligation you felt to people who had sent in their their submissions and their articles mm-hmm. um, to sort of turn turn around, turn them around quickly, be responsive, write back to emails, provide input. That um, that was a huge workload that I did not anticipate, mm. um, and I've never really come to grips with the amount of correspondence I receive. So I my email bo- inbox is inundated every day with lots of queries and fan mail and um, submissions, and I've never been able to deal with that. Like about how many emails a day would you say? Between 50 and 100, I would say. Yeah. Okay. And yeah. when you first threw up Colette on the on the internet, was mm-hmm. it, what was it, like a WordPress site or what? Yeah, it was just a... I had my own blog, which I published on infrequently, and I just, all I did was um, buy a domain name. I brainstormed domain names with my husband one night, and I thought of Quillette, and it wasn't taken, so I bought it. Then I brought my blog articles over to a new sort of template on WordPress, Mm -hmm. pointed that website to the new domain name and that was it it was done and the first the first couple of articles that I received um 
uh, sort of exploded onto the internet. So I received, I asked Jamie Palmer, who's um, senior editor in London, I asked him to submit an article because I knew he was a fabulous writer. And his first article for us was um, retweeted by Richard Dawkins. Okay. So that was like the first article we ever published. And how long was that? How long was the time period between that and when you first started it? Like how long, what I'm trying to get at is how long did you go with relatively little traction until things like suddenly saw a major uptick? Oh, that was in the first few weeks. So that would have been in okay. the first month or six, six weeks. But that, I mean, we had traction like getting retweeted by Richard Dawkins and you know, our first article from Brian Batwell was um, promoted by Steven Pinker. So we ha- always had that level of traction. From the beginning. Yeah, but then yeah. it took another year or a year and a half to get properly known outside of our own circles, if that makes sense. Sure. So what, what do you think was the trigger for that? Do you have a memory or an impression? Yeah, so we were, so we were getting about 5,000 to 10,000 hits on the website a day from day one from when we first started five okay. to ten thousand page views i think it was a, we averaged five thousand okay and then following the james damore scandal with google mm. and i um in response to that controversy i commissioned a, a, a group of scientists jeffrey miller lee jussum david schmidt and deborah so to write some comments on the validity of the memo oh yeah shout out to jeffrey miller i live with him right now if you didn't know that (laughs) yeah so that that was a um big turning point for us because we responded to that controversy very quickly um with experts who don't often get asked about their expertise by mainstream media right anyway following that we started averaging twenty thousand hits a day so our traffic doubled and wow. then our, our name bec- became more widely known. People knew of Quillette outside of our little internet circles. So that was a big, big turning point. And then when Jonathan Kay came on board as our Canadian editor, because he's quite a senior newspaper editor and has like a, a lifetime of experience, he brought on board all of these excellent writers he's got excellent editorial instincts and experience so we have just gradually built up our our readership and our brand and so we're quite well known um yeah uh, even outside of our small group our, our loyal group of fans and when you first started quillette what kind of traffic was your personal blog getting like what give us a sense of like what was your degree of reach or cultural capital that you kind of brought into Quillette to start? No, it was small. Not that many people were reading my blog, but I had a Twitter following. So I probably had 13,000 Twitter followers when I started Quillette. Okay. And that was just from me being a grad student, just procrastinating from doing my actual assignments and just sticking around on the internet, posting interesting articles and studies online. And, and so how long, I built how long had you been posting on the internet as a kind of young intellectual or whatever you'd like to call it? Thanks. 20 probably 2013 so maybe two years two years like very actively aggressively or just like pretty casually and irregularly i was addicted to twitter i would say yeah yeah i was on it every day tweeting no i mean not aggressively not 20 times a day maybe five times a day mostly just interesting articles 
Yeah. I wasn't a, I wasn't a keyboard warrior. And did you have all of these relationships with uh, kind of more prestigious intellectuals? Did you already have those built up? Like you had those friendships and relationships already built up to call on when you started Quillette? Or did you develop those uh, for after you started Quillette or while you started Quillette? I had a, a decent network of more junior academics. So I have I knew academics who are pursuing research in slightly more taboo or controversial areas, but who aren't tenured, who don't have, who you know, don't have 50 papers under their belt. I, I had a solid network of heterodox younger academics. Um, people like Richard Dawkins were following me on Twitter though. So and I had heavy... relationships or just uh, like kind of online mutuals? Online okay. relationships. Yeah. Interesting. If it, if it seems like I'm grilling you, the reason is uh, it's because I think a lot of people have really interesting ideas for creative intellectual projects on the internet that they're more than capable of doing and they have a decent yeah. chance of being able to build up. But a lot of people feel like to do something like that, you have to already have a huge following and yeah. that it's people feel like some kind of impactful intellectual project on the internet is impossible or out of reach to them because they they don't really know how people kind of slowly build it up from nothing over time. Yeah. So that's why that's why I'm kind of in, increasingly interested in getting these stories from people because I think it's it's quite revealing and useful for other people who are thinking about these types of projects. Yeah, well I think one of the key things for me was that I had nothing else to do. So I quit my um master's program in psychology because I had I like I'm a mother and I had um my baby at home and I couldn't juggle the pressures of the master's program and all of the requirements. I had all of this. I did all of my coursework, but then I was meant to do 2000 hours of unpaid work in a clinic, a thesis. It was just too much. Mm. So I, I quit my master's, had a little baby at home who was in childcare some days a week but I still needed intellectual stimulation. And what was I going to do? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, working from home was was the plan and and I, I just um, stumbled on something that worked. But I think, I think the key for making these intellectual projects work is um, consistency and regularity, doing something every day and, and just being a bit patient in the beginning because it did take us a year, maybe 18 months to really get some good traction. Mm. And it wasn't that the quality of our output suddenly um, doubled overnight. It was exactly the same. It's just that it, take, it takes a while to really cut through and, and, and sort of explode into sort of um, a, wider, a wider net of uh, attention. Right. Yeah, I think that's that's very true. That that makes a lot of sense. Now, I heard a rumor once that there are quite famous scientists who write for Quillette with pseudonyms. Is this can you confirm or deny that or you can dodge it if you want? I didn't know what quite famous means. I mean, famous within the scientific community or Yeah. And and even in the public in the public eye. I think we may have had a, a couple, but uh not regular no, we I don't have. I'm curious yeah. if that was true or not. Hmm. Yeah, we've had, we've definitely had some um, important scientists write for us under pseudonyms. That's for sure. But it's not, you know, might have just been once off. Do you feel like the 
need to use pseudonyms and all of this type of kind of in my in my opinion personally kind of paranoid uh tendencies that people have right now do you do you feel like the 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 pressure is kind of decreasing that that this the stigma and the fear is decreasing a little bit and people are a little bit more bold and confident kind of sticking their neck out with their own name right now because of kind of the changing the changing landscape or power distributions is that your sense or no i think so i i, I think so um but it's dependent on the social circles which that one travels in i think for academics who are in the the bubbles where this conformity is mo- at its most intense maybe mm-hmm. it's in new york or maybe it's in san francisco or um you know certain ivy league colleges like yale or cambridge or whatever I think in those little pockets, it's still extremely risky to put one's name to any kind of heterodox thought. Sure. In in the rest of the world, I don't think it's risky at all. And I think it's actually people realize that there are a lot of rewards to um, speaking openly and honestly and truthfully. And, um, you know, I think I think there's a perception that there is risk, but there's also reward. For sure. Yeah, right. Because, I mean, when certain ideas become taboo as, as the weight of that taboo increases, it's essentially artificially suppressing the supply. And we know from, you know, basic economics, right. If supply is being, if supply is being artificially suppressed, then uh, if you can find a way to uh, supply it, you're going to command a a, a mighty fine price for it. So I think, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. People are kind of realizing, Oh yeah. Like all of the huge domains of kind of intellectual exploration have been kind of artificially, uh, you know, uh, discouraged yeah. for so long that if you actually start investing in tilling that terrain, not only is there a lot of really interesting low hanging fruit intellectually, like, you know, puzzles to be solved and, and quite interesting ideas to be discovered and developed. Um, but also, yeah, in the economic and political, uh, scales also of, of kind of what, what has traction and what's kind of most interesting, uh, to people at the moment. So, yeah, I think your, your, your diagnosis of that is definitely correct. Now, it's interesting what you said before about how it's split between let's say academia and the public at large. I think you're absolutely right. And that, and that, and that even seems to be polarizing. Like my sense is that in the kind of left-leaning academic disciplines that are kind of most kind of crazy with, uh, various forms of, uh, you know, perverse group psychology and, and kind of collective self-censorship the, in those areas, or pockets of contemporary kind of intellectual life, they're becoming more and more kind of crazy is my sense uh, and more and more kind of insane and detached from rea- reality. So like those people recently, I kind of did some digging into the, into the wonderful world of the uh, anthropology discipline um, yeah. in part because of your article about David Graeber, it got me very intrigued. So I started digging and it seems to me that anthropology, for instance, has like really, really gone off the deep end in, in, a, in a kind of crazy way. And I, my sense is that that's accelerated. That's changed over time. That it always it hasn't always been like that. And quite recently, it's gone like hardcore. It's gone all in on a kind of stupidity because apparently, like in those areas, those people like they say that Quillette is like a straight up like white supremacy magazine. Like that's what these people really think. They say that with a straight yeah. faith, and that's like the meme that all, it seems like all of the kind of uh, you know high status uh, kind of figures in anthropology, for instance, seem to pretty much like. Uh, say this type of line and that to, i mean to me and probably to most people listening that that's uh no that's obviously false and and just ridiculously um 
malicious type of way to interpret Quillette. But um, I mean, what's your sense of it? Is, is your sense that like, as, as Quillette is becoming more successful, do you feel like the academic disciplines that are threatened by your type of upstart project, are they digging in their heels and kind of becoming more and more insane and aggressive towards you and people like you? Is that your impression? That's kind of mine. Um, well, with regard to anthropology, I think the, um, the field has been in decline for some time now, for decades. So we recently published this article about Napoleon Chagnon and he was, um, Milan, like, uh, subject to this very malicious, fraudulent witch hunt back in the early 2000s where he was accused of um, uh, running sort of like Nazi experiments on, on the people in the Amazon who he went and studied. And this, it all came out that these accusations were fraudulent. Right. But, I read about that in um, Alice Dreger's book, right? Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. right. But the But there are anthropologists who despite investigations demonstrating that these accusations were completely fraudulent and malicious, there are still anthropologists today who parrot the accusations as if they haven't been debunked. Um, so there's something weird about anthropology and, and many anthropologists for decades now have been proud, proud political activists, like they wear their political advocacy openly. And it's. I think if you look at the ratio of um, sort of Democrats to Republicans or liberals to conservatives or progressives to conservatives, I think anthropology has the most extreme ratio where it's like 144 progressives for every one moderate <laughs> or something like that. Like it's Amazing. the most extreme. Yeah. So I think it's it's become a joke discipline. Like it's just a discipline for activists now um mm. so it's not surprising to me that they don't like Quillette because we have a, a philosophical or I would call it an epistemological orientation and that is towards because my education I had a education in psychology and I have a scientific background I like to um privilege evidence over um politics or narratives so we publish a lot of stuff that um, is is philosophically opposed to this m- Marxist kind of worldview where your job as a scholar is not to describe the world, it is to change it. We sort of reject that axiom. We think any a, a real scholar, a real intellectual first tries to understand the world. I mean, it's okay to change the world too, but... The understanding has to be as accurate as possible and it's really difficult to understand the world. It's really fucking complicated. So um, we need the best tools available. And the problem with activists and people who um, buy into sort of orthodox ideologies is that they don't use the best intellectual tools. They sort of bury the best intellectual tools and then they go after people who are seeking truth because it conflicts with orthodoxy. So it's not surprising to me at all that anthropologists don't like what we do, but I don't I don't necessarily see that as an existential threat. Right, sure, sure. Do you think maybe we can take a minute to kind of steel man this, this critique of, of Quillette? I think it's an interesting question to ask kind of like – because you publish so much every day, it's hard. No one could really read everything that Quillette publishes on a daily basis. Um, 
so the the full expanse of what Quillette has actually published over over the length of its history, um, you know, is quite fuzzy to me. Could you tell us like what for the people who call Quillette like a race science phrenology magazine, uh, which, as I said, I, I, I don't believe for a second. What what have you published that you think comes closest to uh, warranting that type of of critique? Could you could you just tell us? I'm curious. Um. Okay, so we've published like around two thousand articles now, um, and the articles that may have um, brought about this perception are very tiny, minuscule in number. However, we do have a broad um, orientation towards. Uh, uh, arguments and evidence which contradicts this, what you would call the blank slate narrative. So mm. I've published a lot of articles on um, differences between men and women, so like sex differences, innate differences in, in psychology and neuroscience and that kind of thing. And we've published um, a handful of articles on intelligence. Sure. Um which is a taboo subject. Sure. And then we've published a couple of articles. Oh, no, we've published one article which argued that race is a real biological thing. Okay. And it overlaps with pe- people's um, ancestry fairly well. I mean, it's not, there's no discrete boundaries or categories but it's right, not I'm familiar with those arguments I, i'm somewhat familiar with the literature yeah it's not merely a social construct so i think i think any any consistent argument or position which pus- pushes back against radical social constructionism is going to attract the moniker of racist sexist um white nationalist not from normal everyday people, but from these extreme leftist anthropologists. Right. Yeah. Have you ever published something where you were your personal view of it was like, okay, this is well reasoned and it's well evidenced, and so I have to accept it, but that you personally didn't feel comfortable with that you kind of ha- you kind of felt like moral compunction or some kind of ethical compunction, but you you couldn't in good faith decline it has that have you published things like that or no yeah no yeah i have i've definitely published many arguments that i disagree with um sure. i don't know if i've published anything that I, um offends me morally maybe a, a a slightly different question which might be more generative is you said that Quillette has a essentially epistemological kind of editorial line that tries to be just about kind of reason and evidence. But I wonder, I'm sure that you get pieces submitted that are on some kind of superficial level, they're they're logical and they're evidence-based, but I suspect you have to get some things from people who are like cranks, right? Who probably kind of visibly, palpably have uh, kind of sketchy intentions or perhaps, you know, you kind of look into them a little bit and you're like, Oh, I, 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 this feels icky. Like I'm sure, I'm sure you and your editors have had at least a couple of, of this type of thing. Do you, do you, does Quillette have any type of moral or ethical line, yeah. um, where like something will 
possibly be evidenced and and reasonable and rational on the surface but you both you all all of the editors just kind of look at each other and you're kind of like uh we just don't want to go here right now Do, does yeah, that happen definitely. yeah definitely and and no that's a good question because we all identify as humanists and liberals so we're all um we're all on board with the idea that everyone should have equal rights political rights should be equal before the law and Aside from evidence and reason being uh, very much uh, our guiding principles, we believe in due process, freedom of speech, um, uh, equal opportunity. So we're we're all liberals. We're political moderates, but we're liberal in our moral orientation and, and humanist as well. So we really um, dislike anything that um, disparages groups of people or and we try to we actually try to avoid um, malicious takedowns of individuals I mean sometimes when bad behavior has occurred um, it requires a journalist to expose it but we do we don't see um, I mean as you would know journalism journalists have undertaken a bullying role more and more in recent mm. years where um, individual citizens who have who have maybe said something wrong or or done something offensive uh, have been uh, you know sought out by journalists and bullied and had their lives sort of wrecked and we we're opposed to that on moral grounds that sort of the, the that kind of personal bullying that that journalists and media outlets do we sort of we try and protect people from that yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I I pretty much inferred as much because, you know, for all the flack you guys get for being like a race science magazine or whatever, you know, as someone who's kind of very active on in weird pockets of the internet, I know I I know quite well that you must be rejecting a lot of stuff that is, you know, really quite that that you that you do think is is harmful on some level that that you wouldn't feel uh, comfortable publishing. In other words, you you probably are you have to have some type of kind of moral or ethical boundaries that you probably do have to enforce for yourselves quite quite stringently and and so yeah i I think like if people could see the 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 full range of stuff that you probably get in your inbox i think people would probably give you more credit for having like a kind of ethical uh you know ethical decency (laughs) yeah yeah um, yeah. I want to go back a little bit more to some of the logistical questions. And and if you find any of these topics particularly kind of boring or you don't feel like talking about them, feel free to, you know, chime in. I, I'm happy to, we could go in many different directions. And by the way, if I'm looking down, uh, just because I'm looking at some notes that I made about what okay. I thought we might talk about. Um, I'm curious, like, since Quillette, the the way that it kind of came up and and the the kind of context in which it rose to some prominence in a sort of unexpected way, as, as you described it. Were there particular decisions you made about managing it and and kind of setting up the operation that, in retrospect, you're like, oh, that was a stupid move. If I if I knew where this was going, if I knew where this was headed, I would have done this way differently. Is there like one thing that stands out as as especially uh, kind of valuable lesson that other people who who do things like this in the future might think about? I think, and this is something that is repeated by people who have early stage companies. It, it all comes back to the people that you hire, the early people, the first people, because um, you you can't having in a in a project like Quillette, having people who you trust, having having people who are 
smart, who have good judgment, who have good instincts. That's invaluable. And also having people who are on board with the mission of the project and who understand it very instinctively and you don't need to sit down with them and tell them this is what it's about. They just get it. Mm-hmm. Um, that's invaluable. And so for me, the, the best decisions I've made are in selecting the people who have come on board the team. Mm. Um, in terms of other logistics, I mean, yes, I've made mistakes, but none of them have been caused any kind of existential crisis. But yeah, I, I, I would just be, I would just um, tell people to be very selective and careful about who you bring on board and make sure the people who you bring on board are missionaries so they get the mission and they want to work for you because it's the kind of work that they enjoy doing and they would do it for free cool yeah free labor i support that like ben thanks ben (laughs) thanks ben no i throw him some money i try to whenever we get super chats i give him half which unfortunately is highly variable um but it's slightly better than an unpaid intern Thanks, Ben. You're the man. Uh, so do you mind if I ask a little bit about some questions r- related to the kind of the business model? Because I think you're not too close about this. I think I saw you, you you've tweeted here and there. I saw in your battles with Taleb, you you tweeted some funny uh, kind of screenshots of, of your income growth and stuff like that. So it seems like you're not, you're not too guarded about that. You don't have to divulge any more details than you want, but I, I would love to hear a little bit more about like is most of your revenue from Patreon or could you break it down in terms of percentages? Like what, where, where uh, Quillette revenue is coming from? Okay. So we have three main revenue streams. Uh, one is Patreon. One is just direct reader donations through the website, which we collect via payments processor. Mm-hmm. And the third is advertising. For a long time, our number one revenue stream was Patreon. But since Sam Harris, Jordan Peterson, Dave Rubin all left the platform at the start of the year, our Patreon has been in decline. Um, So our uh, revenue from Patreon decreased something like 30% overnight when those guys left. Yeah, me too. Most people did, yeah. Yes, as many of our patrons were patrons of theirs and they just shut down their accounts sort of in protest, I suppose. Mm-hmm. So it's taken quite a while for us to get our di- direct reader donations up to the level mm-hmm. where Patreon used to be. And so it's about uh, 40% of our revenue would come directly through the, re- uh, the website, 40% from Patreon and then the rest, 20% would come from advertising. And so we're making it, – it varies because sometimes we get um, one-off donations and sometimes we get a spike of one-off donations. Like when Taleb went after us, when he first had his um, – went nuts at us, we, we received $12,000 worth of donations in one day from readers. Wow. So those sorts of events happen and our revenue increases. But we get between 30 40 Thirty and forty thousand dollars US a month, and in a very good month, it, that will go up to fifty. Oh, cool! Thanks for not being shy about the the figures. That's really interesting to learn. It sounds yeah. like you have a fairly diversified kind of 
portfolio of income streams. Yeah. So, so the, when, yeah, when our Patreon declined by 30% overnight, that really stung because I had just committed to bringing some more people on board and increasing costs. And so I, I had committed and my costs had increased and then my revenue tanked. So that really, that really burnt. So I've learned a big lesson from that. You can't put all of your eggs into one basket and you need to have different revenue streams to keep afloat. For sure. Yeah. When you kind of survey the scene, Claire, of the contemporary landscape of intellectual projects on the internet, especially kind of creative upstart projects such as Quillette and kind of just like, yeah, this, this, this whole landscape, are there particular domains or pathways that you think are are really promising and likely to kind of increase or grow like types of projects or business models or particular areas of of experimentation or activity that you feel like uh you know people should pay more attention to that or maybe experiment more in that because you feel like it's it, it might be it might be ready to kind of take off or grow in some sort of interesting way soon yeah i think um Dissenting or heterodox um, academics in the humanities are probably um, the next big thing. Um, mm. So we've had we've had psychologists like Jordan Peterson and Stephen Pink is obviously very famous and Jonathan Haidt. So there are quite a number of public intellectuals who are, have psychology as their training and background. Mm-hmm. And I think the general public is fairly is quite aware of uh, psychology in general. As you know, there are so many books. Available, even evolutionary psychology is fairly main, mainstream to, you know, if, if you're really interested in it. However, when it comes to the humanities, the output is so uniform and it's so homogenous. I think anybody with any kind of original thought can really potentially cut through. And I think there's probably a lot of hunger mm. out there for interesting novel ideas from the humanities, whether it's sociology, anthropology, or um, even just criticism, like film criticism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, right. if, you, if you look at film criticism at the moment, everything is analysed through the prism of gender and race and class maybe. Mm-hmm. But there are all sorts of other ways to analyse a film. You know, you, one can look at the aesthetics, one can look at... Um, archetypal narratives, whatever. I mean, there are there are a lot of avenues that aren't currently being explored. Yeah, that's, that's I think, a really prescient observation. I think you're totally right when I think about it. So in other words, maybe in the not-too-distant future, there will be a Quillette, but for the humanities. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. Someone uh, should do that for sure. Yeah, do you know of anyone, um, any, any particular kind of interesting young creative people that are that seem really exciting and promising that people might not know about, but that you want to kind of maybe shout out or tell us to watch out for. Um, no pressure. If you don't, you might not. <laughs> um, there, there would be people that I'd publish on Quillette. So, um, and, and people like yourself. Uh, oh, you. yeah. So no, I, I, I can't, I can't think of anyone off the top of my head, but yeah, yeah that's fine. That's fine. I mean, one thing I can actually offer up is that, I recently, I recently did a very modest kind of experiment in uh, self-publishing a humanities book, actually, that, that is pretty much kind of what you're describing. I I kind of purposely tried to target a kind of area of, of research or academic intellectual interest 
that I had a pretty good sense was currently just very, very kind of dead and decadent and and some combination of either just mind-numbingly boring academic crap and also um, perhaps the stuff that's not absolutely boring is uh, just kind of crappy and uh, I, I don't really buy it or find it very interesting. And and so I did a very short experiment. Just I did a I self-published a short book in a kind of weird philosophy niche. It's about the French philosopher Gilles Deleuze. And I did it, I wrote it in like a very, very kind of informal, weird, kind of personal style. Like I just decided to let's just see what happens if I spend one month writing a short book and I'll just put it up for sale. I'll see what kind of numbers it gets. I'll, I'll see, you know, how many people read it, how much money it's able to earn, just as a kind of opening salvo in pretty much. The, the, the space that you described, now that I think about it, I honestly didn't even make that connection when you first said it, that I'm essentially dabbling in exactly the the niche that you're describing as possibly wide open. And I was very pleasantly surprised by the results so far. I published it and uh, released it only a couple weeks ago. And I mean, I well exceeded my modest goals or expectations. And very so cool. for people listening, if you're excited by Claire's suggestion of uh, kind of... Uh, Quillette type space or Quillette type of project in the humanities, I have a little bit, just a little bit of modest personal evidence that, you know, there's, there's, you know, some data to support that. So, yeah. One thing I think would be cool is if a couple of anthropologists or grad students, people trained in anthropology, turned anthropology on itself. So like imagine being an anthropologist and then going into these academic meetings, department no good, meetings yeah. and just taking notes about the behaviour and the norms and how people, you know, how this weird ideology is taking hold. I mean imagine having an anthropologist there when the, the Brett Weinstein thing happened at Evergreen State. Like right. that's the kind of scholarship I want to see. Yeah. Not that it would get published or or approved by ethics boards within the university, but you can still use the training and the skills that you're meant to learn at university and then turn it in, turn it on the mo- some of the most important and bizarre um, communities and cultures that we have today, which is academia and these little pockets of insanity that we none of us really understand. Yeah, that's a really interesting idea. And actually, now that we're talking about anthropology, I'm curious: are there any updates on the on the How story, the uh, David Graeber controversy? I, uh, I feel like we probably shouldn't get too deep into it because it's so weird and kind of arcane. Uh, but for people who don't know what we're talking about, uh, Claire wrote an article recently about David Graeber and uh, a kind of controversy that he was embroiled in, and I found it quite interesting personally. And I actually happened to be a few steps removed from some of the people involved in it, and they kind of came to me, and so I had um, the digital editor of this uh, controversial uh, anthropology journal on the live stream a couple weeks ago. And, and I tried to kind of get to the bottom of it with him. I invited David Graeber on. Uh, he has not accepted the offer quite yet. Maybe maybe he'll come around. Who knows? Um, so without getting too much into it, uh, pretty much like Claire makes the case that David Graeber um, was engaged in a, let's just say, dubious type of uh, kind of political campaign against a kind of less privileged, more precarious, younger journal editor in, in the, in the field of anthropology. And, um, in your article, Claire, you know, David Graeber looks, doesn't come off so well. And I found it interesting because I kind of come from the left and I come up in the left and I'm still, you know, I 
I'm still pretty much a leftist as far as I'm concerned. And uh, no, nobody believes me when I say that. So I don't even bother saying it anymore. But um, yeah, so I actually quite like David Graeber. I always have. I always admired him because I came up, especially in Occupy. I really got radicalized in, in Occupy. So David Graeber had a lot of respect in my mind and always has. And it frankly kind of still does because I still don't fully understand. Like I don't have a very strong mental model of really what what game he's playing or who he is, like what type of what, what really he, he's he's engaged in. In any event, uh, this is why I got interested. And in, so I was just curious. I think some stuff transpired later. There was maybe some other information that was revealed. You may or may not have anything interesting to say, but I was just kind of curious, are, are there any kind of updates or did you change your mind on anything or is, is your picture of it still what it was in that article you wrote? No, there's no updates from my end, but the, the behavior and some of the things that um, Graeber said online after the article was published sort of confirmed in my mind that he's not entirely... Um, he doesn't care about the truth and he, and he does use these very um, slippery rhetorical tricks to sort of like, def- you know, if someone asks him a question, did you do this, he's very good at deflecting and then turning the accusation around onto the, the person who's asked the question. So I don't know, my, my general view is that he's a politician and he's in anthropology and and what happens behind the scenes in anthropology is just like what happens in political parties. People make it's all about power moves and who you're allied with and who you're not allied with. And um, it's just politics, really. Yeah, fair enough. I, I kind of floated a theory when I was talking with Enrique that uh, sometimes I wonder how much of it is just that he's kind of getting older and maybe doesn't realize that. I think what the kinds of cultures that are brewing in contemporary grad schools, I think are a little bit more uh, perverse, let's say, than a lot of people realize, because I think the younger people coming up into academia who are trying to get into academia, well, first of all, you kind of have to kind of question what types of people are like really passionate about getting into, into academia right now. Uh, that, that's one thing. But the second thing is it's so competitive and academia is one of the last remaining domains in which you can get like a really decent salary and high social status um, in a way that's like quite insulated from market pressures once you get in anyway. And so I kind of have this mo- mental model where I think that the cunning and the kind of dubious character traits that are getting selected for in up and coming grad students are uh, perhaps becoming a little bit more insane than people realize, especially if you kind of you entered your, your academic perch, you know, several generations ago, I think uh, there might be a tendency to kind of underestimate how, how cunning and and strange and perverse some of the incentives might be for young people who are trying to break into academia. Yeah, no, I completely agree. When I was in grad school just a few years ago, what I noticed that was the, the traits that I saw being selected were um, sycophancy and conformity and neither of those things I thought were conducive to original thought. So I thought, you know, what's the what's the point of this? This is this is just creating, um, you know, the same type of worker that a bureaucracy creates. And I think, I, I mean, I'm not an expert on David Graeber, but I think his his uh, political he is a political activist. I would he in my mind he's a political activist before being a scholar. And I think the types of personality traits that you described, the sort of Machiavellianism, those are the traits that you need to be a 
be a successful politician or a successful political activist. So it's not, I don't think it's very surprising that this is happening. This And this process is more intense in the more politicized fields. Yes, I think that's right. And by the way, I want to backtrack slightly because I know there are a lot of people in my audience who, who are still thinking about going to grad school and I'm not trying to rag on that. I try to be very clear. I did a whole long live stream with Jeffrey about, about this. There are many totally defensible reasons for wanting to go to grad school. And I try not to, you know, poo poo that. So, you know, I, I kind of, I, I can be a little bit harsh sometimes, but uh, you'll forgive me. Don't take it all with a grain of salt listeners. Um, Claire, do you, when I'm curious. Um, I feel like, oh, did you have something? I'm sorry. Oh, I, I think one thing is interesting and I'm not sure if people have investigated this or not, but um, so at the moment in academia, you've got these people in the sciences and in the empirical fields and a lot of them are extremely naive about what is happening in the humanities and then right. the hu- people over in the humanities are saying those people over in psychology or evolutionary psychology are a bunch of like fascist eugenicists. And then the people over in the sciences have got no idea. Like Mm -hmm. if if you went to the medical school and you took papers from fat studies journals over to the medical school, they would lose their mind. Like they, and, and it's interesting to me how these silos in academia have created this, these massive blind spots or these massive areas of ignorance where the scientists don't realize that a lot of what they're doing is sort of under assault. Mm-hmm. Or actually going to be attacked, right. and then blindsided, blindsided when they are attacked. Right. I think that's a really good point. And uh, my my model of that is that, and listeners again, forgive me for if I seem a, a a bit too cynical. You'll forgive me. I am a kind of recovering retired academic, so for at least a few years, you have to kind of allow me um, a, a somewhat kind of aggressive critique of what's really going on under the hood. And my mental model of that, Claire, is that when I was an academic, for, I was an academic for like more than five years. And the the sense I had of things was that academia kind of operates by this sort of live and let live policy, right? And I think every academic who has a nice, comfortable perch in academia, everyone is a little bit aware that they're kind of rent seeking a little bit, that they have this like really cushy, nice gig where they, you know, can get away with not working that hard often. Uh, many of them do by all means, but um, many of them don't and you can, and you can get away with it. And it's really quite comfortable and insulated. And I think there is a shared knowledge. There's, there's a shared sense that everyone who's an academic is enjoying a very special and rare kind of um, economic and, and social political type of privileged position. And there's a kind of um, unspoken agreement to, for everyone in every discipline to pretty much not poke too many holes in what the other disciplines are doing because no one wants to kind of ruin the whole gig for everyone. Um, and I think that's, I I honestly think that that's, that's part of, of the underlying model. Like that everyone in academia knows that they have a rare, amazing setup that could politically be taken away from them any moment. And so they all kind of just agree to not poke to anything too hard. Mm. That's interesting that I've, I have not heard that thesis before, but it sounds plausible to me. It sounds good. Mm. I think we have something incoming from the audience. All right, Claire. So um, this happens every now and then someone will uh, throw us some money to answer some particular questions that they are especially interested to put on the agenda. So we are going to accept a couple at the moment. Ben, do you want to uh, read them out? Dinky donuts. Yeah. Can people hear this? Can people hear this? 
Maybe just uh, go ahead. Okay. <laughs> okay. The question, I mean, they're asking you to ask Claire about Me Too and how Quillette has addressed it. Okay. What was the person's name? Dinky Donuts, yeah. <laughs> All right, thank you for that question. Uh, Claire, did you hear that? Yeah, I did. Um, the, yeah, so the first article we published about Me Too was fairly early on in the movement. I think it had only been going on for a couple of months. I think it was in March and the movement started in November 2018 or something like that. And it was... Um, that the title of the article was why I'm uneasy with the Me Too movement and it was just a criticism of the sort of mob um, mentality um, that was sort of taking over and um, I I think most of the articles that we've published, I think all of the articles that we've published have been critical of the movement because, I mean, from our point of view, yeah, sexual harassment is awful it's um in many situations it's a crime and it just has to be dealt with fairly and with due process and any kind of um activist movement lends itself to um frenzy mob hysteria people becoming treated unfairly having their lives destroyed by accusations that aren't substantiated and we've seen that and we've published several articles about people who have been accused of things without evidence and and the the consequences for them are terrible Mm. okay good good answer i'm sure people mostly care about your opinions claire so i'm gonna uh keep my mouth shut on that one and ben what's the other one you want me to read or i can put it Oh, yeah, put it up on the screen and read it. Yeah, why not? Oh, yeah, that's cool. I can see now. Yeah, people, we have a very sophisticated operation, and it's becoming even more sophisticated. I have a computer screen here now, and Ben can show it to me visually. And so I'm seeing what you're seeing. It's pretty badass. Oh, Mark Ledwich. I know Mark. He was recently on the live stream. Good man. Mark asks, for Claire, Quillette publishes firsthand accounts that are hard to verify independently. Was this a calculated risk? Have procedures changed? Oh, that's cool. Could you just leave that up anyway? Well, the each each account is different and we verify them in different ways. So when we publish people who are who want to write under a pseudonym, we check their who they are with their ID. And then first-hand accounts, um, we have to try and verify them with documentary evidence. There was, we did have an article that we were meant to publish this week that was a first hand account of a dispute that happened within a university, and we've declined to publish it because um, the first hand account didn't match up with the other person's version of events. So, um, yeah, we do, we do have to um, verify, but it's on a case by case basis that that occurs. Mm. Okay. Fair enough. While we're talking about this question, I'm I'm also curious, Claire, are there particular topics that you think are systematically underexplored, even in kind of the Quillette zone? Like, do you do you feel like there are pressing questions or issues of explore that should be explored that aren't being explored that, for instance, you would particularly welcome submissions on? That's a good question. I think at the moment there's a great deal of investigative journalism that isn't being done because it's not being funded and um, there's 
there's probably thousands of stories about injustice and exploitation and abuse that aren't being investigated or published. Um, but it just requires the it, it just requ- requires people telling those stories and um, and either funding themselves or getting funding from some kind of supporter or patron. In terms of thematic issues, uh, I think it depends upon geography. I mean, here in Australia, I'm quite interested in how um, uh, Chinese soft power is influencing academic freedom in this country. Mm. Um, I'm not sure. Yeah. yeah, I'm not sure what's happening in the United States regarding um, that issue, um, but I'm sure there are. I'm sure there are lots of issues that are underexplored um, that vary according to geographic region. But I think that politics is becoming more and more boring, and that there needs to be more focus on culture, but from um, points of view that aren't dominated by this race and class and gender paradigm. I think we need to bust open that paradigm and look at culture and um, books and art and films from fresh perspectives. That's what I'm interested in at the moment. Brilliant. Yeah, very well put. There's another question we have from someone named John Forstmeyer. The question is, has Quillette published anything on open source economics, either in software or non-software fields? Yeah, I can't remember the title of the article off the top of my head or who even who the author was, but we did publish something on someone getting booted out of an open source software forum, I think, for sharing a Quillette article. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. You know, the question makes me think back to the Demore episode, which you cited as a particular turning point in the rise of Quillette, because... Yeah. It also, for me, was a kind of turning point in my mental model of kind of the sociology of beliefs in academia. I remember it was a major updating moment where I realized simply because sex differences became a hot topic to talk about at like, you know, social parties or whatever. I did not realize until that episode how many of my friends with PhDs (laughs) actually like really were firmly convinced of the absolute certainty that there are no real sex uh, differences in psychology. And I kind of just assumed I gave all the, I gave like all my kind of PhD friends in the humanities, just the benefit of the doubt that probably most of them just don't know that much about psychology research, which is, which is fine. That's fair play, you know, uh, to just not know and say, you don't know. I, I assume like that would have been the position of most of my friends in, in the humanities with PhDs. But I was really, really shocked and kind of like quite, quite surprised and kind of, uh, yeah, troubled by realizing like how many of them were like absolutely certain and confident yeah. Yeah. of something that is just like basically false in, in the scientific literature. And I think it's really funny how it's a popular meme on the educated left to say, like, we believe in science because what they're really referring to is, is climate change and, and the, the science on global warming. So they have a self understanding of themselves as, as the science realists. Um, but they don't even seem to realize that actually there are domains. Like if, if believing science is like a meme that you believe in, that's like a part of your identity. Then what that really means is you defer to the scientific literature 
you you, you defer to the consensus in, in the literature in the literature right um mm. but like that's not at all true and and it, and that was, it was only then that i really realized like how deep that kind of contradiction goes and mm. i and i kind of like significantly updated my sense of like where i was <laughs> mm. um no, I think that happened to a lot of people mm. yeah yeah um we have another question i guess uh once someone asks one question then everyone wants to get in uh all right this question is from derek bowser derek asks what range of opinions are allowed at quillette could someone on the far right like nick fuentes have an article published uh claire do you know who nick fuentes is i'm a little bit closer to the ground of like weird internet stuff so i can get i think i could try to give you a, a somewhat of an explanation if you don't know I've heard of the name, but I don't know who he is. I don't. I don't know very much, but I do find kind of the weird internet subculture is very interesting, and it's kind of become like a kind of. I, I guess my podcast has become known for kind of exploring some of these weird pockets, and so I don't know much at all. But if I recall, his system or project platform, whatever you want to call it, is about. Uh, it's called America First. If I'm thinking of the right person, you could Google this actually real quick, Ben, if you don't mind. Um, I think he's he's young. He's like a Zoomer. He's he's a Gen Z kid and uh he has a youtube channel and a, and a kind of independent platform where i think it's pretty much like um nationalism it's very kind of like maga kind of he's a he's a young kind of edgelord provocateur who, who i don't know how racist he actually is I'm, i think he's i think it's popular in the gen z generation for like young aspiring kind of like edgelord intellectual young men to kind of like provocatively play with kind of like white nationalist stuff without necessarily being a white nationalist. So I think it's ambiguous. I'm not going to speak to it because I don't know like how racist he actually is, but he definitely plays with it. Um, and this is like a popular fashion. I think among, like a lot of older people don't know this, that, but I think I know this because I'm close enough, just slightly close enough to, to it that um, I, I have it on good information that like for young men right now, um, it's very popular in like private DM chats to use the N word, for instance. Um, and they all laugh at it. They all think it's funny and they all kind of see it as relatively innocuous. And they, and they laugh at people in my generation who like still refuse to say the N word for fun. <laughs> um, I know this in part because there are constantly people in my chat telling me to say the N word. I'm like, I'm not going to say the N word. <laughs> and, and anyway, so that's my, that's my summary of uh, Nick Fuentes and the, uh, the kind of Gen Z like edgelord uh, kind of young white male subculture so the the anyway uh the larger question that this person is driving at is um you know it's kind of what i asked you before maybe the person wasn't listening where do you draw the line and specifically yeah. this type of young edgelord persona do you have a kind of hard line kind of uh keeping these people out of quillette or where do you fall on that yeah no i mean the short answer is no we don't we don't publish people who are intentionally provocative we don't publish people on the far right or the far left, um, we're politically moderate. And that that just is reflected in, in what we publish. It's not, that we, it's not that we screen every individual writer according to their political beliefs. We don't. But we, can, we get a sense of whether someone is um, sort of, how far out they are from the centre just from their style of argument, their style of writing and how performative they are. I find the, the further you go out from the centre, the more it's just performance, it's just like live-action role-play. Mm. There's a lack of seriousness. We like to publish serious people who have given a lot of thought to their arguments 
and generally most of them are politically moderate and north of center. Right. Now, what about, so someone's kind of following up with this. What, what about um, like a, a very reasonable, you know, well-evidenced, valuable post, but, it, but it's by a person who's perhaps, you know, his history or his, his kind of previous work is perhaps uh, more dubious. Do, do you draw a line with the content or do you draw a line with the types of people that you allow into the orbit of Quillette? Uh, well, we would have to make an assessment on a case-by-case basis. Um, I, sure. I mean, we're, we're generally fairly um, sympathetic um, and we like to give people second chances and I'm not going to rule someone out just because, you know, um, they were maligned like 20 years ago. Um, but it would depend on the article, what they were arguing in the here and now. Sure. Sure. And, I, yeah. Yeah. I, I think, I think some people would say, uh, you know, oh, that's just shows you're not principled, but as someone who also in my own way has to make these sorts of decisions, yeah. I think Claire, you're just being honest about the, the basic reality that ultimately these things are always going to be uh, a judgment call. It's always yeah. going to ultimately, the line will be drawn with a kind of uh, yeah. informal judgment of the people in charge. And there's no way around that. And I think Claire, you're, you're, you're just being honest about that. So I, I, I get that definitely mm. real quick. Uh, so a few things I want to kind of clarify, this is genius, by the way, that we threw the public chat up for me to see. I don't know why we didn't think of this earlier, but apparently Nick Fuentes is not totally white. I don't know if that's true or if people are trolling. Apparently he's like partially uh, Latino or whatever. I don't know. I don't really care that much, uh, but just thought I'd throw that out there. And also we have a uh, super chat from Brenton Milne for 50 bucks. Thank you, Brenton. Now, finally, Ben will be able to eat dinner tonight uh, because we have some super chats coming in with some generosity. Thank you, Brenton. Uh, Brenton, by the way, folks, is a other life OG. He's been kind of uh, floating around my circles on the internet for as long as anyone. So uh, what's up, Brenton? And thanks for that. I appreciate that, dude. Very grateful. We have other questions. Oh man, they're pouring in now. So Woker Nexus uh, says he's giving us five bucks for not using the N word. You're welcome, Woker. There you go. <laughs> All right. Um, what else we got, Claire? I don't want to keep you too long. I think I uh, you you kindly gave me an hour and a half. Is that right? So uh, about fifteen more minutes. Is that alright? Or do yeah. you need to go? I have to plug in my computer. I can do that. That's fine. Yeah. That. Sorry, you broke up for a second. You said that's that's fine. Yeah, that's fine. Awesome. So just a few more questions then. I'm, I'm curious when, when you were first kind of blowing up when Quillette was really growing and you first kind of realized, Oh, like this has legs. I need to start thinking strategically about how, you know, how can I make the most of this? Did you consider other business models? Like were there other, or really at any point in in the trajectory, have you thought about or toyed with other business models that maybe you decided against? I was just kind of curious if, if you, if you entertained other possible pathways for Quillette? Um, well, it was an entire, I was doing it for an entire year, probably. Um, no, it was almost two years that I had been doing Quillette entirely self-funded. And when I say self-funded, I mean, I only put 10 grand of my own money into it. Um, and it was uh it was that long and then I put up a Patreon page and we'd or, we already established a very loyal base of readers and supporters before I even put up a Patreon page. So I think um, getting the fans first and getting the readers first before asking them for money is probably a good tactic. For sure. I've never, yeah. 
I never considered another business model because I don't think there are other business models at the moment. I think crowdfunding is the best business model there is at the moment for content and creation. Um, advertising is a supplement, but it can't be the primary revenue stream because then you just have to chase clicks and the quality just declines right. rapidly. It's perverse that way. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think crowdfunding and um and finding your niche of readers, supporters, or viewers, whoever that niche is, um, and developing a relationship with them, that's the most important. For sure. Yeah, that, that's certainly true, I think. So that, that's good advice, no doubt. I guess I was kind of thinking other other opportunities or possible domains of experimentation. For instance, I mean, just the, this, the world of creative kind of intellectual uh, monetization methods are it seems to be really burgeoning and it's all quite new. So for instance, like online courses, for instance, is like a, a kind of weird, interesting, but I, I find quite intriguing kind of booming sector, yeah. uh, digital products like eBooks yeah. or even possibly moving into some kind of traditional publishing like Quillette, uh, I'm sure could, uh, yeah. feasibly, could feasibly pursue any number of these other ways of kind of growing the Quillette empire. I'm just curious, have you thought about any of these other, kind of interesting possibilities that seem to be kind of increasingly popular and successful on the internet. Yeah, no, we're definitely considering those other opportunities and we're considering events as well. I think events is definitely um, a viable revenue stream and people can make a lot of money through events. However, there's also a lot of risk involved Um, Mm. and uh Running events takes a lot of work, um, and we don't want to uh, do a fire festival, so <laughs> we've got to that very carefully when we get oh, to it. Man, that documentary is so good. That, the fire festival, did you hear about that? You, you can Google it later. It's it's hilarious. It was basically just a, a big kind of conference meetup festival type of thing that someone planned, but it was a huge boondoggle, and basically people got ripped off from Ed Money, and it was crazy, but there's a documentary about it that uh, kind of goes into it. It's hilarious. Um, okay. Let's see what else. Um, I had so many questions, not too much time. Oh yeah. So before I let you go, um, I've kind of recently introduced a new tradition into my live stream. Uh, it's a little game I like to play called based or cringe. Uh, do you know what these words mean by any chance? Yeah. Yeah. I know. Okay, good. You're, you're close enough to the ground level of internet culture to know. Very good. I'm impressed, Claire. Well done. So this game is basically, I'm just going to say some things and you're, your role is to say based or cringe. And yeah, it's very uh, simple to the point of kind of being almost stupid. But I think sometimes the world has a little bit too much kind of fake sophistication and sometimes a little, you know, stupid oversimplification is a, is a useful and fun exercise. So are you ready, Claire? Sure. All right. The first one based or cringe Greta Thunberg. Cringe. Cringe. Would you like to expand or we can just go rapid fire? Uh, keep going. All right. The Joker movie. Haven't seen it. Sounds based. Sounds based. Okay. How about Neil deGrasse Tyson? Cringe. Ooh, say more, would you? Uh, don't know that much about him, but what I've seen is cringe. This is about you, not me. So I try not to interject my opinions, but sometimes I can't help myself. And yeah, I'm totally, I think Neil deGrasse Tyson is totally cringe personally also. I mean, no disrespect to the guy. I'm sure he's super smart, obviously. 
but his whole kind of like shtick and his, especially his kind of like lukewarm kind of uh, apodictic kind of like political attitude towards things rubs me the wrong way. I think he should, uh, I think he should stay in his lane. I'm generally in favor of people leaving their lanes, but not Neil deGrasse Tyson. Um, how about, uh, I had some others, but I lost them. <laughs> ben, you got any? Oh, I think we know the answer to that. Uh, any news on the Nassim Taleb front or how, this is my question for you, but, uh, uh, Claire, what, what's your mental model of Nassim Taleb? You know, what, what, what game is he playing? What's his, what's his deal? I think he he views intellectual life as I think he wants to be in the mafia really. I think he has daydreams about being mafioso and um being Tony Soprano living in New Jersey and having all of the respect and the power of 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 a mafioso and I think he's trying to turn intellectual life into a zero sum game. Mm. And it isn't Intellectual life is a positive sum game and uh, always has been. And it's just, I think it's just a little bit sad that he tries too hard to make it a zero sum game. Mm. Basically. And he's destroying his reputation in the process. I mean, there's countless numbers of people who have read his books, admire his contributions to the culture and his ideas, um, but who are really uh, not impressed with his online behavior. Yeah, fair enough. See, I'll disagree with you on this one. I'm I would go based on on Taleb. I think Taleb is very based. And frankly, I love the the feud you have with him. I think it's epic internet content. I hope it continues indefinitely. I think you both should uh carry it on, you know, until <laughs> until the day that both of you die. I think it's amazing. I think it's amazing. I love I frankly, I just really like aggressively disagreeable intellectuals. Um and yeah, I actually care less about who's right on particular debates or whatever, even if he's sometimes an asshole. You know, I'm kind of like there's just not enough of that in contemporary public intellectual yeah, life. Yeah, I, think, I think that's a good point. I think most intellectuals and academics live in what you would call a dignity culture. And, you know, if someone insults them, they just turn the other cheek. But sometimes honor culture, so drooling, is, um, is as you say, entertaining. can be a little bit stressful for the people involved. But as I said earlier in the podcast, in the live stream, our donations increased substantially after being attacked by him so it hasn't hurt us right that's awesome and hilarious monetarily or financially yeah i mean i've been kind of drumming i've been kind of beating this drum for quite some time like a lot of people don't realize that generally when something happens to you on the internet that looks bad for the most part it increases all of the metrics that you're trying to increase for the most part and i think honestly Um, i i really think people don't understand that quite yet because if they if they really understood it you would see way more people kind of playing a more dangerous game like I am and kind of just taking their licks because they realize that actually it's like a promising and quite viable kind of growth strategy. Um, And and frankly, though, I think I would slightly disagree with you, Claire, about what you said about Taleb because you said he's only ruining his reputation. I I think that's wrong. I think he's doing what's good for him in the same way that a feud with Taleb is good for Quillette. I suspect you're both energizing your bases and increasing support and increasing attention. And I think that, I think that this is the world that we're in. I think this is just how it works. It's all subcultural. Now there's no, there's no question anymore of uh, kind of vying for top spots in a kind of mainstream 
arena. It's everyone is playing to their own audiences. And because the global internet is so much bigger than the kind of traditional mainstream kind of uh, TV broadcast spaces that people can basically play to their base and have like infinite growth for their entire life. And many people can do that. And I think that's what people are doing. And it's one reason why the, the sense of culture is being torn apart. Our like sense of, of a shared space is being torn apart in part, in part because it is because the incentives are there to do it. Oh, Oh no, we lost Claire. Oh, did she say she needed to charge her computer? Okay. Oh, that's okay. We lost Claire. I think her computer died. It's perfectly fine. We will stay on the air for a little bit and uh, hope she comes back. If she doesn't, it's okay. I was going to let her go in just a few minutes anyway, so it's no big deal. Um, if you're here for the first time, folks, I hope you thought that was fun. Hopefully, we'll get her back. If not, uh, while I have you here, I just want to say, um, yeah, thanks for coming out. If you're here for the first time because you just wanted to check out Claire, maybe you're a fan of Claire's. I have these kinds of conversations with people all the time. And then the audio from this talk will go to my podcast. It's called Other Life. You should be able to find it wherever you get your podcasts. So uh, please do go ahead and subscribe if you want to listen back to this later. Maybe you didn't catch it all. It's much easier. So yeah, we'll just hang for a little bit. Um, stay with us. Maybe Claire will come back. If she doesn't, and if you're out there listening to this, Claire, it's totally fine. It's okay. It was a pleasure talking with you. This was really fun and it was good stuff. So um, frankly, you know, if you're listening to this, Claire, you don't even have to fire your computer back up unless you want to. You're welcome to. We'll be here for a little bit. But anyway, yeah. Do we have any other questions from the chat? Any other, any other input? I'm actually looking at it now. So Razib Khan is in the house. What's up, Razib? Who else we got? Any other questions, comments, anything I can, I can talk to? I'm sure you mostly want to hear from Miss Claire, but uh, hey, so not bad, Ben. We did 73 bucks today. That's not bad. You can actually have dinner for the first time in weeks, right? Very kind, everyone. Very kind. That was cool. That was fun. What'd you think, Ben? Claire is badass. I think I just want to go out and say that I'm, I'm a, I'm a fan of her as a person. I just think that she, you know, she was a young mother and she just wanted to kind of jump in the public intellectual arena. So she did. And, you know, she was absolutely right. What she said a few minutes ago, which is like, it really doesn't matter what your following is when you start, if you just put out content frequently and consistently, like it's not that hard to gain a enough of a following that it becomes worthwhile. And then if you keep going, it's really not impossible to get to a point where you can create something quite significant, you know? I, and I think it's, it's a very badass of her. You should be monitoring by the way, to see if she pops back yeah, in. Okay, cool. No worries. Um, yeah, I think it's, it's, I'd love people who with no particular institutional permission or encouragement, just, they like ideas. They want to think. They want to speak. They want to participate in the public arena of, of of ideas. And without any permission or support, they just start doing it, and they commit to doing it, and they're consistent. And you know, they build something. And 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 when it succeeds, I think that's amazing. I think that's a beautiful thing. Is she back in? All right. I think Clara Lehman is back. Sorry about that. No, that's okay. I'm glad. That, I'm glad that you told us in advance that your computer battery was on the fritz. So when you disappeared, we knew that it wasn't because you hated this experience. <laughs> um, Claire, it'll, so it'll I don't, out again soon. Oh, what's that? It'll cut out again soon. 
But okay, I'm no worries. I'm gonna let you go. I'm gonna let you go anyway. I just wanted. I'm glad you came back. I just wanted to tell you pretty much what I was saying while you were gone for a minute, which is I'm very grateful to have talking have have talked with you. Um, I think you're really cool. I think I think you're really badass, and I just want to tell you that. I was just saying when you cut up, I was telling the audience that, you know, you were like a young mother, and you, in your own words, just had nothing better to do, and you like ideas, and you wanted to participate in kind of the public intellectual arena. So you just, you know, you said what you thought, you put stuff out there consistently for a certain period of time. And then you felt the confidence to like create something new that no institution or, you know, more prestigious person told you to make, or no one gave you permission. No one gave you encouragement. You just created something because you wanted to. And I think that's badass. And I I think you're very cool. And I'm glad, I'm glad that Quillette is having the success that it's having. And uh, yeah, I just wanted to tell you that I think you're a badass. Thanks, Justin. No, I know I I've been watching your um, movements as well, and I think it's really cool that you know you could, you've stepped outside of the the institution and you're carrying on with intellectual life independently. And I think that's the way of the future. And I think you know with the internet, why why would you limit yourself to just teaching in front of the in a class? I mean, you can teach to thousands of people all over the world, people who probably need it more than the people in your class. Yeah, absolutely. The quick answer to your question, I think, is that people don't know how to do otherwise. It just hasn't really been figured out quite yet. And that's why I was asking you all those questions about kind of the anatomy of your project and how it works. And I think this is going to become more of a focus of some of my content that I'm putting out is like really trying to understand how to create viable systems of, of kind of creative, radical, intellectual life outside of institutions. Because I think the honest answer is people just don't know how to do it yet because it, it's so new. And so I think as, yeah. as you, as you figure these things out, Claire, as, as people like me figure this stuff out, I think like I'm, I'm really hopeful about a kind of upcoming renaissance of, of yes. a, a kind of proliferation of creative intellectual life on the internet. That's at least like my, what I'm really invested in. And I think in an obvious way, you're, you're obviously a part of that and you're doing great work for that. So thanks again for coming on, Claire. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Justin. Cheers. All right. We'll let you go now. Take care. No worries. Thanks. Bye. Bye. All right. You can leave it running for a little bit. I have a little energy. We can keep um, keep talking a little bit. Claire, if you're listening to this, you're off the air, so you are free to shut things down. And uh, who else do we have in the house? Any thoughts, comments on that? Any uh, questions or topics you think I should riff on a little bit? I would love to hear if people have any impressions on that discussion we just had. Um, usually at the end of these, I'm like very tired it's hard to talk for long periods of time but uh this one's like this one i feel inspired i feel kind of like energized it's nice talking with people who i think i really enjoy the line of questioning where i'm like trying to understand how people's projects works and uh, how, how people's projects work and that line of insight and analysis makes me kind of inspired and stimulated in a way that just like talking about ideas doesn't it, talking about ideas is fun but when you're just talking about abstract stuff over and over, it just fries your brain a little bit. Whereas talking about logistical issues and strategic questions about how to build things and, and what works right now and what's what are what are promising pathways of, of for, for growth in this kind of weird new intellectual world, that stuff I find it kind of revs me up, you know. Um, but that's just my my two cents. Uh, what else do we got? Khan. How dare you, Khan? How cruel of you. You just said Claire is beta. Come on. Claire is a badass. I mean, I like you, Rasib. Mad respect. But uh, you did not create a 
like suddenly heavy hitting kind of intellectual collective output machine out of thin air. Did you receive? No, I don't think so. I mean, your blog is cool and all, dude. And I respect what you've built by all means, but uh, don't hate on Claire. I, I don't know. I feel like sometimes I talk with people and uh, I'm kind of like, okay, that was cool. That was interesting. And then sometimes, you know, I, I feel like, um, I don't know. I just feel a kind of like camaraderie. I felt like I'm, I'm, I'm basically going to stand for Claire. Is that what they say? That's the internet lingo, right? Sometimes there are like ways of saying things that I, I like learned from the internet through osmosis. I'm pretty sure I know what they mean, but I actually am not sure at all. And then sometimes I'll try to say them in conversation and I'll be like, I'll suddenly feel very awkward. I'm like a boomer trying to be like a hip. Um, I think what people say, Stan, right? Some, can someone clarify this? Like S-T-A-N, you say you stand something or stand someone. It means like you support them, I think. Is that right? <laughs> this is the definition of cringe. 33-year-old man uh, trying to use internet lingo that he's never heard spoken before, but uh, thinks he knows what he's saying. It is kind of cool, though, how, how kind of culture does work that way uh, through osmosis. Can they see this? So we're looking at the word Stan. It's a portmanteau of the word stalker and fan. Okay, I'm not a stalker of clearly <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> uh, it refers to someone who is overly obsessed with a celebrity. Okay, so not great not great usage. I didn't mean it like that. I meant I'm a fan of Claire Lehman. I like her. I think she's cool and I enjoy talking with her. Uh, she's also just like open and, and kind and easygoing and fun to talk with. So yeah, that's my that's my quick take on 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 Claire Lehman. Uh, but no, I think she said a lot of cool things that I, I want to listen back to. Like, as many of you know, I'm taking very seriously the kind of logistical and strategic challenges of how do you kind of build from scratch a financially viable kind of system of of truly independent, non-institutional intellectual productivity. Like, this is what I'm doing full time. And yeah, I think it's a really exciting space to think about it this way because people, it hasn't been figured out yet. Like there are people kind of hacking it, making it work. But how to do it reliably and effectively, it's not like something that has been figured out in a way that other things have been figured out. So like if you want to Google like, you know, how to use WordPress, you know, you find like tons of resources, tons of free tutorials, there's best practices, there's tips and tricks. It's, it's easy to kind of learn how to, how to start a blog, for instance, or something like that. Um, but like how to defect from institutions and be like a, a financially viable public intellectual with absolutely no support from anyone or anything other than the people who are interested in your work, that playbook hasn't been figured out. So that's like pretty much what I'm doing now. And so, yeah, I think it's, it's really exciting. And frankly, I, I also, I, I'm going to give everyone a little bit of a uh, foreshadowing. I, I'm going to leak a little bit of a, of a secret, if you will, about something that I'm working on. I'm not going to say too much, but pretty much what I've been doing over the past year or two informally and without much kind of strategic reflection i have um i've been very interested in kind of the community building aspects of the stuff that i'm doing so like one of the amazing things about being really honest and kind of crazy on the internet is uh, people come to you and they're also kind of interesting smart uh people who are slightly crazy and uh you know they they have energy and they want to they want to make stuff they want to do stuff but they don't know how so they come to me asking questions and um i've been noticing this and i've i've i think it's amazing. It's an honor. Like I'm, I, I feel privileged that people uh, see me as someone to ask for this type of advice. But as I've been thinking about it, you know, 
when people send me an email or whatever, like I'm not able to give the time and attention that I would like to give, you know, cause I've learned so much about how to make these things work and how to optimize uh, this kind of game that I'm playing. And I actually have tons of knowledge about how, about what works and what doesn't work. And whenever people ask me for advice, I, I, I try to give like a thoughtful long email to the best of my ability, answering questions or whatever, but realistic, I'm, I'm just obviously not going to be able to help everyone who asks me for these types of things in that way. So I've, I've been brewing in my mind for quite some time now how to, how to solve this problem. And I've been slowly converging on a, a particular idea about a way that I think I can, I can basically take all of what I've learned over the past couple of years about how to build a financially viable kind of system of solo, non-institutional uh, kind of intellectual productivity on the internet. And I, I think I have a kind of idea for how to basically start like sharing what I know at scale at a way, in a way that is like directly kind of useful and hopefully kind of motivating and, and would also kind of include a kind of community support type accountability motivation type of aspect. Um, in short, I am starting to plan somewhat seriously now a, a kind of more sophisticated high investment kind of uh, private community for people who are interested in essentially doing what I'm doing. And I haven't worked out the details. I'm doing research right now. Specifically, I'm doing user research. And in fact, I might pick your brain later, Ben. Um, I'm, I'm reaching out to people who I know are kind of candidates for this type of thing that I'm trying to build, I'm, I'm planning to build. And I'm just asking them some questions, trying to get a better sense through data of like what people really want and how one could construct this in a way that really kind of provides a lot of value to people. And I'm pretty sure that I'm converging on a, on a model that I think could be, I could maybe have it up and running in the not too distant future. And I think it could maybe be like a, a, like a 10 X kind of multiplier in the ability to kind of collectively incubate like significant, effective and financially sustainable intellectual projects such as mine in a kind of community driven way. That is the idea that I'm working on. So um, yeah, I've this is the first time I'm actually kind of even sharing this slightly. I don't want to say any much. I don't want to say too much more because the details haven't been worked out. I want to do this with an open mind and in a very kind of rigorous data-driven way. But if this is something that interests you or uh, appeals to you at all, or if you have any input on it, um, I'm, I have a very open mind right now. I'm, I'm doing this research right now. So hit me up if you have any thoughts on that or, or if you have anything to share on that. Um, probably if you're really keen to learn more about it or hear more about it when this kind of goes on, uh, probably the best way is to just sign up for email updates. There's a link in the description below. Um, if you don't want to get a lot of emails, just do my monthly newsletter and you'll definitely hear about it through that. So um, yeah, if you're interested. What else? Anything in the news, Ben? Any interesting stuff or uh, really uh, spicy takes in the in the chat here? Talking about Jews. Oh, great. That's always... That's always... Um, Conpot's in the house. Yeah, where's Conpot? Oh, people are talking about it. Yes, yes. All right. Why don't you scroll down to the bottom? If anyone has any kind of last questions or comments that they really want to squeeze in, I am here. I'm looking. Um, let's see. Uh, Noah Watson asks, are you going to talk to the distributist again? In fact, as a matter of fact, I am in, in talks with him right now. I'm probably going to do his show and talk about base Deleuze. Um, he's eventually going to come on mine. He's like kind of gone off the internet a little bit. He's still on YouTube, I'm pretty sure, but he like doesn't use Twitter. He 
prefers to communicate through Skype, like text chat. I've never met anyone who uses Skype as like their main way of text chatting, but nothing but respect for distributist. Uh, so hopefully that will come together. I just always forget to check Skype for like text communications. Um, what else? MA asks, how's the book doing? Depends on which book you're talking about. Base Deleuze is out. Um, that's doing quite well. If you're talking about how is it doing in terms of sales and income, frankly, I'm I'm quite happy. I'm quite I was braced for like very, very modest results. You know, I, I really wasn't expecting I wasn't expecting much. There's not really many people who are doing self-publishing in kind of highbrow philosophy domains. So there's not too much data for what to expect, like what kind of market there is for that. And you never really know how much, you know, people are going to take to something. So like when I did the idea for Base to Lose, when I launched that project, you know, I was kind of like, my minimum hope was like, it would sell 50 copies maybe and, you know, make a few hundred bucks. Um, and I think currently it's, I think I sold almost about 200 and made almost about $2,000. Uh, yeah, it's so, I mean, as a one month experiment, pretty much. I mean, I took a little bit more, I took my time a little bit and did other things too, but pretty much it was, uh, in retrospect, I probably, if I did just that, I could have done the whole thing from start to finish in one month, realistically. Um, cause it's a short book, you know, like a book today is not, it's not the same thing that a book used to be like that. Just what, what it means to, to call something a book is very different in, in the internet age. And, uh, people actually like short books. People want something that they can read in a weekend. It's fun. It's, it's kind of easier. Right. Um, and especially if you have like timely ideas that maybe aren't going to be that interesting for, you know, that long. I actually think I'm quite pleased also with the actual content of Base Blues. I thought it was, I thought it was a pretty damn good little book. You know, it's just a short, it's a short kind of spicy, you know, fun kind of, uh, intellectual essay, if you will. But so I, I wouldn't like, you know, put it on a bookshelf next to Kant's first critique or anything like that, but I think it's damn good. I think it's, it's worth its weight. It's worth its price for sure. And it's got some really cool ideas in there that I think are really unique and that you're not going to find in any other Deleuze literature, which I actually really do think. And I tried to write it in a way that was fun and, and interesting and stimulating. So I'm quite proud of it, to be honest. I'm not, I'm not too proud of it. It's just, it's a short book, right? But um, yeah, I would say in all dimensions, pretty much, I think the Base Deleuze project was uh, a success. It was more of a success even than I than I hoped for. And frankly, it hasn't stopped selling. Like usually what they say is that after you launch a book, there's a period of sales and then it like goes to no sales and then you just don't really see many sales at all. But I still see like, I guess I don't, I, I have to do the analysis. I'm going to, by the way, do a data analysis and kind of show you all the results and kind of uh, in detail. But um, I still get like one sale every other day or something like that on average. It's definitely slowing down, but uh, yeah, so it's not even done. It's not done selling. And I also, I did a video course with it and I did an audio book with it. So that I think is the reason why it made a good chunk of change because um, yeah, people just pay a little bit more for the audiobook and they pay um, the video course is 50 bucks. So, and like a few, a small handful of people bought it. I wasn't expecting many people to buy it. That was really just, I, I was literally like at the last minute, I was like, I'll just throw on there like a upgrade for a video course. I'll price it at 50 bucks just to see what happens. And at the time I put it up there, I had zero content done for it. I was just like, if no one buys this, I'm not going to do the work. But if someone buys it, then I'll do the work. Uh, and at first, only one person bought it. And then I was like, oh, this is the this is the worst outcome because it's not going to make that much money. I'm going to have to spend mad time on building up 
like I think I promised six video lectures. And so at first I was kind of like, uh, 50 bucks is cool, but that's like not worth all this work. But then like a few more people bought it. So that gave me some hope that, oh, actually, you know, I'll put the work in, I'll make it good. And then there's some chance that in the future, like other people will want to buy it. And that's awesome. So yeah. Um, Tom Clements asks a question, which I am going to dutifully not avoid. Uh, he asks, do I regularly go to mass? And the honest, unfortunate answer is that since I have moved to Albuquerque, no, I have been neglecting that. I feel bad about it. Uh, it's, it's a failing on my part. I want to, I, I plan to, but yeah, I've been bad about that. When I was in England, I went pretty regularly because there was a church really close by. Um, so it's no excuse, but uh, it is just being honest about why it's just because everything is so spread out in Albuquerque and I don't have a car. So I kind of don't do very much at all. That is like, it requires a distance uh, beyond walking. So I need to, and I should, but I haven't been. Yeah. What else? Uh, Dank audio stash asks, well, there's an audio book already. Hell yeah. There's an audio book. You can get it uh, with the book. It's just like a few extra bucks. And that was pretty cool doing the audio book. I never did one of those before, but I think it sounds pretty damn good. Thanks to my patrons who hooked me up with fresh gear. Thank you uh, for your support. What else? I feel like I'm starting to uh, run out of steam a little bit. What do you think? Should I? Any any kind of pressing questions or topics? Um, oh, good. Yeah, I'll take that. Dylan asks, what's the word on Deleuze versus Heidegger? <clears throat> right. So that is absolutely in the works. It's coming along. It's just on a little bit of a slower timeline. Uh, I'm, I'm doing an online course with my friend and colleague, Johannes Niederhauser who is a Deleuze scholar. Many of you will remember him from our previous live streams. He's really, really good, I think. I think he's really smart, very, very articulate. He's very thoughtful and rigorous. And uh, he has a a really impressive, I think, admirable kind of attention to detail and, uh, you know, the the precise meanings of words. He's he's very careful and articulate. And he's also just cool. I I always enjoy talking talking with him. People really liked our podcast on Heidegger. Um, and he's not famous. Like he, he has a quite a small following. I think he's, but I think he's like much kind of higher quality and higher value than his current followings suggest. Um, so I think he's very underrated and he's very interested in doing the types of things that I'm doing and in his own way, he's, he's doing them also. Um, uh, we're both just kind of trying to figure out, figure out how to do all this. So, uh, we're friends and we talk. And so we decided to do a, an online course. We'll just give it a go. We'll see what happens. And so he's going to do a series of lectures. I'm going to do a series of lectures and it's going to be on the philosophy of technology. He's going to lecture on Heidegger. I'm going to lecture on Deleuze and we're going to kind of make it a bit of a back and forth, although it'll be relatively kind of self-contained parallel tracks probably. So that is in the works. It's happening. Absolutely. Um, If you look for the podcast, the live stream that I did with him, podcast or the live stream, there's a link to a sign up page. If you want to get the syllabus, you can check that out. That is happening. Uh, he's busy. He works like full time, right? So not everyone can move as swiftly as I can because I'm doing this stuff full time. Uh, he does not have that that luxury at the moment. So yeah, it's probably realistically. I don't want to make any promises. It's nice to just kind of have an open ended timeline. But we're definitely doing it. We still talk regularly about it. We're pushing it forward without a doubt. And probably realistically, sometime in January, I think is a realistic expe- expectation for when that course will go live. But yeah, you can sign up now and then forget about it, and we'll let you know. What else? Zombie TV asks, 
did I expect the Greta tweet to generate as much controversy as it did? Absolutely not. I, you know, I, I mean, I knew this, I, <laughs> well, I don't know. No, honestly, honestly, I didn't like in retrospect, it's easy to, it's easy to realize, oh yeah, this one was like touching an explosive nerve. But when I, when I think things and I say them and I write them, I'm just thinking this is obviously a reasonable thing to say. <laughs> like that's all I'm ever thinking. And then it becomes um, explosive. I guess that time I did have a little bit of a uh, kind of expectation that this would happen. Cause if you notice, I used the same kind of opening line. I started with not even being provocative, but <laughs> the last time I had a viral tweet go really bad. Um, it also started with not being provocative, but um, so that kind of gives you some indication that I had kind of a glimmer that this might be, uh, you know, an explosive one, but I had no idea it would be this explosive. This was by far folks, the widest anything I've ever produced has traveled. I'm pretty confident. It was on Al Jazeera. It was featured on Al Jazeera. I think it was featured on a couple other um, American sites, uh, like cable, like network news sites. I think I'm not sure about that, but I saw screenshots. Someone sent me like a, a, a screenshot video of it being featured on Al Jazeera. Um, I, I don't know if you're going to be able to find it. And frankly, I don't want to. Oh yeah, there you go. Yeah, yeah. Oh wait. Um, no, that's my old. That was the last time I appeared on Al Jazeera as a oh. professional academic. Uh, Honestly, let's not go into it. I want to. I, I kind of want to put it behind me. Yeah. No. Thank you, though. I appreciate. It. I appreciate you looking. Um, yeah, it was the most explosive anything I've ever said has been. Um, and frankly, uh, I don't want to give too much. Like, I don't want to feed the trolls, you know. But uh, this one was actually kind of. I have extremely thick skin, but this one was actually kind of disruptive to my life um, because this was the first time ever that something I did on the internet led to multiple family members calling me. Uh, so that was kind of awkward. And um, I won't say too much more about that. But um, yeah, I have thick skin. I could care less what people say about me. I find it hilarious. And as I've been saying to people, it's fucking awesome and hilarious to when the world is sending you all this hate mail and you're watching like your patrons go up, you're watching like your email subscribers go up, you're watching, you're getting like, you know, uh, it's actually quite like a fun and hilarious kind of thing to game. Uh, however, I love my family to death and I want their peace of mind and comfort. And so, um, yeah, this was the first time that I was kind of like, yeah, okay. I need to kind of think about this a little, <laughs> a little bit more. Uh, we'll see. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's fascinating because, it's really, really fascinating. And I'm not just going to talk about myself because that's not what's interesting. It's, it's the phenomena. It's the, it's the mechanics. Um, like what's interesting is that people think that if you're a professor that has like a lot of pull, right. That has credibility. People care more about your words. You're more likely to have influence or impact, but it's all, it's, it's like five or six months after I left academia that you know, this random tweet had like way more, you know, influence than anything else I've ever made. Now you can reasonably question, oh yeah, Justin, but is that really influence? Is that the kind of influence you want? Uh, is that really going to uh, make any type of impact on the world, let alone a positive impact on the world? But you do not understand how these things work. And this is what I'm trying to get through to people. This is not just like a game uh, that I'm playing for kicks. This actually does have positive impact. And here's why people have positive impact for people to actually care about what you think and, and 
to actually for people to pay attention to what you're really trying to do on a serious level, you need to you need people to know who you are and to check you out, to simply check you out, right? Um, and then even if only a tiny fragment of the people who are looking at you because of this kind of provocative explosion, uh, only a tiny minority of the people who come to you through that are going to see you and be like, oh, this guy's actually doing something really interesting and unique and, and, and impressive. Like probably 0.001% of the people who looked at my Twitter profile because they saw that tweet go crazy. It was probably only 0.01% of people who looked into me and they were like, oh, I just discovered a really interesting, profound, consistent, you know, a dedicated like guy doing something really weird and creative and, and maybe significant. Right. Um, it, but it only needs to be 0.001% of those people who see that, who see you that way. And then they DM you, they get on your mailing list, they join your discord server. And then if you do that multiple times, <laughs> then in five years and 10 years, all of a sudden you have like a fairly large number of people who actually understand what you're trying to do and care about the, what you're trying to do. And they like you for what you're trying to do. So like that, that works. I, I really fundament, I fundamentally believe in the logic of that kind of phenomenon. Now I'm not, that doesn't mean that I'm telling people to go out and just go max edge Lord to basically like attract as much ire as you can possibly No, Of course not. I'm not in any way suggesting people should become publicity hounds. What I am saying, however, is that if you have a genuine thought that is provocative and you think it's like a genuine thought that's worth sharing and that's not actually bad, you know, that's a, a really crucial stipulation here. Like I never say anything that I think is actually bad. And every now and then I'll say something that uh, immediately after I kind of realize, oh, I fell into the trap of actually like stupid edgelording and that's reprehensible and that's shameful and, and sinful and, and I'll delete it and I'll apologize. It does happen every now and then, no doubt. Because I'm imperfect, right? Like everyone is. So that's not at all what I'm saying. I'm not saying go max edgelord and say irresponsible shit. Only say things that you think are genuinely interesting points, uh, worthwhile thought experiments that press on kind of bourgeois sensitivities or bourgeois contradictions. So only say things that you genuinely think are worth saying and that are true and 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 reasonable, valuable kind of intellectual outputs. Hundred percent. All I'm saying is that if you have a genuine thought or insight that you know is, oh, this shit's going to be kind of explosive. People are going to hate it. I might get a lot of flack. All I'm saying is don't avoid saying it for that reason. Go with it. Take the take your licks. Take the hatred. Because with that hatred is going to come a whole bunch of new people who really like what you're doing and who get you and sign on to your projects and want to know more and want to learn from you and want to you know receive the message that you're developing. So uh, yeah, 100%. That, that is definitely i'm i'm now i'm now self-conscious of that kind of uh, phenomenon and yeah and i i am kind of playing it but it's crucial to distinguish that that does not mean i'm just choosing to be a publicity hound not not at all i'm just not afraid of publicity even negative publicity because um you know it it actually is a viable way to positive impact so that's my that's my two cents on them <sighs> what do we got Caduceus Bard says, shout out to Tech War Podcast. All right. Shout out to Tech Wars. I was on Tech Wars. They're a fun bunch. Uh, do you think about the fact, asks, crap that ass 88. I, I love some of these usernames. This is, we got some hot, we got some, some epic, epic people in the chat here. Uh, crap that ass 88 asks, 
Do you think about the fact that being controversial like that might make you popular for a while, but then crashing and burning like Richard Spencer? I think I already addressed that in the lengthy response that I gave. No, not at all. Uh, Because that's not what I'm playing. That's not the game I'm playing at all. In fact, I would say the opposite. What I would say is I'm aware that when you write a viral tweet that's really naughty um, and it goes viral and like thousands of people are sending you hate mail for two days straight, three days straight, really. um, I know those people are going to forget in like three days because those people are the dumbest, most kind of reactive people who are possessed by technology. They're possessed by resentment in ways that they, that are extremely deep in ways that they don't even fully understand. They probably do this every other day to like a new person, right? They don't remember a thing about what happened five days ago. They forget the scandal du jour. Um, and that's exactly what I'm saying. I'm saying, take your, take the hatred from them because who cares? They, they're not going to remember. It's not going to last. So I would say it's the negative flack that is short-term, that doesn't last, and that dissipates, and people forget about it. And what's left over, what actually does last, is those 5, 10, uh, maybe 50 people who found out about you through this through this word of mouth and who are actually now paying close attention to what you're doing because they really get it or like it. So that is actually long-term. That's sustainable. That Those people will stick with you because, look, here's the thing, folks genuine kind of radical committed public intellectualism like the kind that i'm trying to cultivate that i believe in is extremely rare it just is i'm not saying i'm special or anything it's just as a matter of fact it's extremely rare it's just not a game that many people play nowadays because it is hard because people hate it you, you get hatred you know you're you um it, it's tough um but if you do it people know it like if people there are people out there looking for this kind of thing and that, that want to read and listen to like really kind of crazy, provocative, kind of dangerous, whatever intellectuals. And, and this type of like negative virality uh, actually makes a lot of people be like, oh, I want to learn more about this guy, you know? And so, so yeah, I'm, I, I honestly think that that is, that is how it works. And if you believe in the truth of what you're doing, if you believe that you're, you're really working for uh, honorable motives and you're just trying to kind of seek the truth as radically as you can, if you are confident that that's truly what you're doing, then I think you can do this um, somewhat consciously with with a good conscience. That's my take anyway. <sighs> Noah Watson says, but if people Google your name in the future, this tweet is going to be the first thing they see. Absolutely not, dude. It's going to be replaced by the next provocative thing I say in no time. Do you have, dude, this is not the, this ain't, this ain't my first rodeo. I've done this many times. I've been through this many times and I know how it works. First of all, everyone is going to forget in like a week. Second of all, even if there are digital traces, it still doesn't uh, cause a problem for the longer logic of the strategy that I'm articulating here, because it's still the case that um, if you're a type of person who's looking for radical, provocative, like thinkers who are willing to take risks and willing to take social punishment, if you Google my name and you see, oh, this guy gets in trouble all the time, my logic still holds. You're going to think to yourself, oh, let me look into this guy. It's kind of interesting, right? So. Now the 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 catch here, the, the the crucial qualification is you do have to be all in. You know, you you have to be fully pot committed, as the poker players say, to a kind of radical intellectual life for the long term. Uh, and that's hard to do for sure. That has risks for sure. I wouldn't recommend it for the for the weak of heart. But if you want to be a true intellectual, I hate to sound so kind of. I know people think that's pretentious. I know people think like I, I get a lot of. You know, people make fun of me for the way that I talk about this, like so earnestly or whatever. And again, I'm not saying that I am this, that I'm like some special, 
you know, genius or anything. Not at all. I'm just trying to figure it out. I'm, that is what I'm looking for. It's what I'm trying to do. That, that is my goal and my aspiration. And it always has been. It's, it's a certain vision of a kind of ideal, just absolutely uncalculating, uh, dangerously, recklessly honest um, kind of thinker who just kind of pursues every kind of thought possibility to the, to the most extreme degree possible and doesn't really care what the fallout is. Like, I think that's, that's the proper mode for tr- for any true intellectual. And I'm not saying that I've achieved it or I'm the apotheosis of it, but I'm aiming for that. I want, I want to, to I, I aspire to, to achieve that type of, of grandeur. And it, and it is grandeur. There's a difference between aspiring to grandeur and having delusions of grandeur. I'm, I think I'm very realistic about, you know, the, the very modest, uh, kind of uh, particular game that I'm playing in my own small little slice of the world. I, do, I don't think I have any delusions of grandeur, but I, my aspirations are grand for sure. I think people should have no, no shame in that uh, in any event. And I think that that is, that is hard to do. It's risky for sure. Um, I wouldn't recommend it unless you feel strongly called to it. But I think, you know, there's many more people other than me who, who are in fact strongly called to it. And I'm trying to, in my own little way, just kind of reveal under the hood of, of like how it works and the mechanics of it. Uh, because I think when you kind of live through it a few times, when you see like how these media circuses really work, it actually becomes really demystified. Um, you know, it's not as big and bad and scary as people think. In fact, when you go through this rodeo a few times, you kind of realize how pathetic it all is. Like, like these people, I was getting hate mail for three days straight. I could not check my mentions. Um, and like, these people are the saddest losers. I mean, if you really think about it, it's kind of so obvious to me now that like when you go through this a few times, I almost don't like talking about it because I feel bad for these people. I don't want to, I don't want to bully these people, even though they're like saying they want to kill me. Um, I feel very bad for them to the point that like, I don't even want to speak ill of them because I mean, just think about that. Like what type of person sees a tweet, some like provocative thought experiment uh, that pushes some of their emotional buttons. And then like, DMs the person they don't know to say, like, your balls should be removed or something like that. You know, like, what kind of person says that? Like, clearly, only like uh, uh, people without much to do and uh, with really kind of unhinged, highly reactive, kind of like emotional, emotional monkey brains, I think. Uh, what else do we got? Uh, Justin skipped over it completely in contrast with his said mission. We skipped over what? Um, I didn't catch that. Oh, the JQ. Um, that means the Jewish question and all the uh, Zenji, uh, Zenji, sorry, I, I'm probably fried now. Uh, Gen Z edgelords in the chat who follow my work. They love, there's a few recurring memes. One is Justin say the N word and then uh, the, the JQ, AKA the Jewish question. And uh, look, all right, here, here, once and for all, I'm going to address the JQ. Uh, the JQ is that um, Ashkenazi Jews have higher IQ on average than normal white people like myself. And so that explains that explains the JQ. There you go. That's all there is to it. Um, I like Jews. I've always liked Jews. Um, always in my life, for some reason, I think I've said this before, at all times in my life, there has been like someone who is like very unique and 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 close to me in some in some sort of unique way, uh, who is Jewish. Like I've always had this kind of weird 
kind of attraction to Jews or just like this kind of like magnetic force that for some reason uh, at all points in my life, there's like someone who means a lot to me in some way or another who is Jewish. And, uh, you know, the, my professor in university when I was an undergrad who basically like really got me into philosophy and intellectual life. Like this was probably the single person who was more responsible than anyone else in my life for making me want to be an intellectual and making me feel like I could be an intellectual. Uh, that made me kind of feel like I want to give my life to just figuring out how I can spend all of my time thinking and speaking like, and writing like as radically as possible. Um, it was a professor who was an Orthodox Jew. He was, he was a rabbi and, uh, uh, a theologian in some sense and a political theorist. And, uh, yeah, shout out to him. I'm sure. Um, oh gosh, I haven't talked to him in a long time. I tried to stay in touch with him. I, he's quite old now. I hope, I hope he's still, uh, working and, and kicking. Last time I was in Philadelphia, I talked with him in Philadelphia. I do check in with him when I, when I remember to, but, uh, shout out to him. I, there's the probability that he would be watching this under any conditions is probably zero. Um, but, uh, REA Botwinick was his name. Dude changed my life. Brilliant dude. Uh, love that guy. I owe him so much. And, uh, yeah, he was an Orthodox Jew, wore traditional, uh, Orthodox Jewish garb. I don't know what they call it uh, to class. Um, the dude just did not care about anything other than ideas. And he would just rock up to his political theory lectures and just talk for two hours nonstop about like Levinas and Derrida and negative theology and the history of the Torah and stuff like that. And it was just like, so out there and all the other students, like almost all the other students, except me and a few other small, small group of people, everyone was just kind of like, what the fuck is this guy talking about? And they're like sleeping and they're like, uh, totally confused. And, uh, but like me and maybe like two or three other people, I just loved this guy. I loved his lectures. I loved going in there with like, I bring in my big cup of coffee from Starbucks and I would just listen to this guy, uh, lecture. He would just pretty much rant. He was like old school, no PowerPoints, no nothing, just papers. And he would basically just speak about like crazy shit about Levinas and Derrida and Nietzsche and, and so much more. And I would just listen with excitement and just feel like thrilled and inspired and just kind of think like this guy is a real intellectual, you know, he's, he's obsessed with ideas. He doesn't care about anything else. He doesn't care. If people like him. He doesn't care if he looks cool. He's wearing traditional like Orthodox Jewish garb. <laughs> you know, he looks like a rabbi. He doesn't care about anything other than ideas. And he cared about ideas so much and just spoke with energy and enthusiasm. And uh, the dude absolutely changed my life. I, yeah, it's too bad. He doesn't, it's too bad. He's almost certainly uh, too old to be watching YouTube because um, I would love to, I would love to tell him everything I just said. I haven't talked to him in a while. I've definitely have told him how much he means to me, but uh, yeah, it's a nice trip down memory lane. So thanks. Thanks for whatever. Thanks to, th thanks to whoever. Yeah. The, yeah. Thanks to the person for asking about the, the JQ. Uh, thank you for inspiring this trip down memory lane. Jews are awesome. What is that? All right. Let's see. Do you think the idea that we live in a cancel culture is overblown? A lot of people seem to be identifying themselves as canceled just because people on the internet are mad at them. It's a good question, zombie. Um, I think I would say two things. One, you can affirm that cancel culture is absolutely real. I mean, it does seem to be real, right? There are many cases of people actually being canceled and experiencing major decreases in status and income because someone or some group uh, accused them of some kind of 
moral violation of one kind or another. And so cancellation seems to be a real phenomenon. It seems to happen plenty. And that seems objectively true. Now, I think you can also say that it's a complex kind of strategic uh, interaction going on here. And people are, there's social learning involved and some people are getting smart to it and there's different factions. So of course, it's always going to be complicated. Um, and I think what's happening is that now people are kind of realizing that this is really kind of stupid herd behavior that's that's relatively easy to game and what's happening now is that if you get canceled and you know what's going on like you understand how the culture works and you understand you have a kind of prescient political sense of of the mechanics of attention and influence then you can get canceled and if you ride it correctly it can actually lead to an increase in in status and and capital on condition that you switch domains, right? So you have to kind of trade in your old capital in one domain. And, but if you stay strong and confident and you ride it with style and grace and you follow certain strategies, which are the strategies I'm essentially articulating throughout these live streams that I'm always talking about and trying to share with people, which I've learned from experience. If you follow those strategies, then you can get canceled and come out ahead. You can actually come out on a higher level in terms of status and income than you had when you were canceled. And I think people are just realizing that. People are learning that. People didn't know you could do that. Um, but the, the the stuff that's driving the cancellation is relatively stupid people who are mostly possessed by kind of technology and they're possessed by kind of social pressures that they don't even fully understand. So what that means is they're gameable. They're predictable. And if you're smart and reflective and you don't mind being a little bit weird in the short term, if you don't mind looking kind of strange or maybe some people not understanding at first, then if you're smart and courageous, it's not that hard to essentially game the stupid mobs and come out the other end like more impactful, more receiving more attention and actually having higher status in the minds of more people. Like I'm 100% convinced without, without um, you know, uh, putting candy coating on this or without exaggerating at all, I'm 100% convinced that pretty much already, I think, my status... And my income, well, my income is certainly not as high as it was when I was an academic, but my status is higher. I mean, if you see, it's confusing because how do you define status today? Because the world is so fragmented, there are different status domains, right? So obviously to the average academic, if you ask them, you know, you know, how, how much respect does Justin Murphy deserve? Maybe like the, the, the net answer to that from, from academics is maybe a little bit lower. Frankly, I'm not even sure that's the case because I was a good academic, like I was successful and I published good, you know, peer-reviewed research and it was in good journals and stuff. And I was definitely like promising. I was early career. So um, I, I didn't have that much time yet to really kind of establish myself as, as a major kind of academic force, but I was definitely doing well. I was definitely on an upward trajectory, but because I was still in the early career period, I never had that much cultural capital as a professor, you know, like I, I was never influential in my fields. I didn't have the time yet, you know, to, to do that. Um, so if you're kind of at the beginning of a kind of traditional career climb and you face the possibility of cancellation, that's kind of a, a uniquely attractive position to be in, in some sense, because um, by moving out of academia and taking my cancellation and doing it, you know, with style and grace, I think anyway, or just doing it, you know, uh, doing it consciously and having fun with it and not backing down and and doubling down, in other words, on your own freedom and your own uniqueness or whatever, then if you're starting at a relatively low kind of level, 
in your traditional career and you're relatively young, then you can just move laterally into the weird internet world. And certainly there are larger numbers of people. If you took, if you look at the number of people who know who Justin Murphy is and think he's cool, if you just counted the number of people out in the world who that describes, it's certainly higher now than it ever was as I was an academic. It's not huge, by the way. I'm not, I'm not famous, like hardly at all. I'm, I'm really, like, I, I don't think of myself as famous. I'm, I'm, I'm a small fry. Like, look at my YouTube. It's only like a few thousand subscribers. I'm, I'm not at all, you know, again, no delusions of grandeur. I'm just saying relatively. Um, if you look at my kind of impact or influence or reach or respect or however you want to kind of operationalize social status, uh, yeah, it's it's almost certainly higher now. It's just different people. So if you care more about like what academics think about you, then if you if you want to weight that and say like, oh, their opinions matter more, you could you could make that argument. If that's how you say it, that's fine. Personally, I just don't buy that. I think that um, like I'm 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 placing my wager on the fact that on my belief that the opinions or estimations of like a few hundred academics across the world matters less and less in terms of, you know, impact and, and long-term kind of political and intellectual influence. I think that, I think their weight is decreasing. And I think the weight of like an average person and the kind of quantitative, uh, the quantitative trade-off, like the fact that you can get so many more normal people uh, kind of understanding and interested in what kind of work you're doing, um, the kind of quantitative trade-off more than outweighs, even if there is a slight kind of qualitative trade-off in favor of academic, you know, receiving respects, respect from academics. So that's, that's essentially my, that's my take on that. I could say much more. I've been thinking about this stuff like full-time for, for so long. So I'll talk about, I'll talk about this stuff more. My camera is now dying. So that's a wrap, baby. Thanks for hanging out, everyone. Subscribe to my channel if you haven't done so already. And uh, this was fun. Thanks for hanging out. I am I'm very grateful to have your attention. I always am uh, to this day. I'm still just humble and impressed and surprised and grateful that uh, there's a small little handful of you out there who get what I'm doing and like kind of hearing me work out my ideas and projects. So thanks for being here. And thanks for the super chats, by the way, folks really appreciate that. Ben Williamson here helping me out is going to get a full half of all of that. So uh, maybe maybe a little bit more because the past ones have been a bit dry. People have not been so generous. So I'll hook you up a little bit extra, Ben. All right. Later, folks. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you thought that was cool, then don't forget to subscribe. And it would be even cooler if you left a review. I'd appreciate that. And yeah, just to learn more about what I'm up to, you can check out theotherlifenow.com. That's all. And I will see you around the internet.